I'm Chris Reback. This is Political Wire Conversations. Before we begin, some questions. Who will win the White House? Will there be a contested convention this summer? What about the House and Senate? People who want to stay ahead of the curve turn to the Cook Political Report, and with good reason. For 30 years, the report has nailed the nation's most important election outcomes and political trends. CBS News' Bob Schieffer called it the Bible of American politics. Nate Silver noted, few political analysts have a longer track record of success than the tight-knit team that runs the Cook Political Report. Little wonder the New York Times called it, quote, a newsletter that both parties regard as authoritative. People who make it their business to know politics make it their business to subscribe to the Cook Political Report. Just go to cookpolitical.com slash political wire. That's cookpolitical.com slash political wire. And now to our conversation. Many of us look at this extraordinary, ridiculous, seemingly unprecedented political season and wonder, how is this possible? The anger we understand. The feeling that the system is so corrupted that the only effective approach will be to kick over the table and figure out later how to rebuild it? Even those who don't agree the problem is that dire can get their heads around the idea. But the fear-mongering, name-calling, locker-room talk mimicking is the path to the White House? What is going on? According to historian Rick Shankman, the answer just may be science and evolution, or perhaps more accurately, a lack of evolution, and the way our natural instincts are helpful for, say, avoiding sharks in the ocean, but unhelpful when it comes to sharks of the political kind. Shankman is the New York Times bestselling author of Political Animals, How Our Stone Age Brain Gets in the Way of Smart Politics. Shankman uses science to explain why so many of us are susceptible to politicians' manipulations and why so many don't seem to care. Shankman is also editor and founder of the History News Network. Rick, thanks for joining me. I get, of course, daily reminders at home that my brain has hardly advanced from the Stone Age, but I really thought I was alone. What about our brain makes so many of us susceptible to this insane political campaign? Well, let's start with the basis of how our brain got to be. So during the Stone Age, this is a period that lasted two and a half million years. That's when the human brain mainly evolved. And it evolved to address the problems of the Stone Age that hunter-gatherers faced when they were trying to just survive. And it didn't evolve to try to address the problems that we face in the 21st century. And there's a mismatch. And I identify many problems in the book where we have our brain kind of not being able to help us understand uh, the problems that we're facing. And what we are seeing in this current election cycle is Donald Trump constantly triggering ancient instincts that are embedded in the human brain to address the problems that hunter-gatherers face. And that's where you get him uh, playing on people's fear and their anger, particularly fear of outsiders. That's really just a straight holdover from the Stone Age. And that, of course, is creating all kinds of problems in our political system. But he's seems to be well on his way to winning the uh, Republican nomination, unless he gets really uh, jammed up in Wisconsin. We'll see what happens there. Yeah, well, well it's, it's absolutely fascinating how so much of what you kind of identified um, through the science, through the history, um, relates or, or can't, you know, can be applied or seems to relate to, to what's going on now. And yeah, you've, you've given some lie to the, the claim, you know, for, for the anti-Trump folks who say, you know, I, I just don't understand it. This guy, you know, this guy acts like a caveman. Uh, you, you kind of look at some of that or listen to that, I'm sure, and say, yeah, exactly. That's exactly right. And it resonates. 
I was surprised by Bernie Sanders's uh, uh, popularity in the Democratic primary. I was not surprised by Donald Trump's. When I saw his introduction back in June to uh, uh, this current cycle and what he was saying, I thought, this guy's going to go places in the Republican uh, Party because he was hitting on those uh, red meat issues that really uh, drive Republicans to the polls, that get them really excited and get them going. And a lot of the other candidates in the past haven't been willing to be just as blatant about it. Trump was just being blatant about it. And each of his big issues was something that was triggering one of these, what I call these ancient instincts. And when you trigger these ancient instincts, as the social scientist Michael Bang Peterson uh, discusses in his work, those instincts swamp our higher order cognitive thinking. So when Donald Trump starts getting people really upset about Mexican immigrants coming illegally across the border, he's triggering this ancient instinct, this fear of the community and a territory that we feel uh, a strong identity with. And of course, what you want to do in those circumstances is you want to push these people out, you want to shove them aside, you want to view them as a threat. And once you do that, that fear and anger uh, module in your brain gets activated and you can't think straight about about uh, any other issue or about this issue. You can't you literally can't think straight about it. It just swamps your faculties. Yeah. I mean, you've written a political book and you're a historian and, a, you know, a, a journalist and a writer and uh, by trade. Um, in, in, but you've written a political book that is based on evolutionary psychology, among other sciences a, as well. Um, so, but give because I do want to go through as you've just started to do, kind of some of the you call them red meat issues or red meat topics that Trump talks about, and you really kind of have a scientific evolutionary reason why they resonate. But first, give, give me the the you know the thirty seconds on evolutionary psychology. You know what is it? What what made what attracted you to it? And what was kind of your aha moment when you kind of realized, wait a minute, there's a connection here um, between uh, you know this discipline and politics. So let me begin by talking about my last book, which was uh, Just How Stupid Are We Facing the Truth About the American Voter. I wrote that book eight years ago after it turned out that a majority of the American people believe that the reason that we went to war in Iraq was because Saddam Hussein had been involved in some way with 9-11. Now, it wasn't true, but a majority of the American people couldn't get the most basic facts right about the most important event of their time. I was alarmed by that, and I decided to uh, don the hat of Paul Revere and basically run around the country and scream, hey, we've got a problem here. We've got a 10-alarm fire in our democracy if people can't get the basic facts right about this most important event of our time. Well, after I wrote that book, which was an Amazon bestseller, but alas, didn't seem to change the political environment, uh, People really at that point were not willing to look at this problem of public ignorance uh, straight in the face and uh, really address it. Uh, thank you, Donald Trump. You have finally put that on the uh, agenda of the mass media. So now it's something that everybody's talking about constantly, which is great. That was my goal to get this issue out there. Well, after I wrote that book, um, I thought I really want to understand the science behind this, because it doesn't really make any sense. Each human being comes with 86 billion neurons. We are more 
capable than any computer that has yet been devised by man. Everybody's got a brain that's smarter than the smartest computer on Earth. So how is it possible that we have this incredible gap between the facts of uh, politics as we know them and the picture that people carry around in their heads of the world? Uh, that picture that they carry around in their heads of the world is at variance with how the world really is. So how how is that? It doesn't make any sense. So I decided to start investigating um, scientific claims about this to try to uh, reach a better understanding than I could reach simply by confining myself to history, which is what I have done for 40 years. So I'm 61 years old, and this was uh, like enrolling in undergraduate uh, and graduate studies in the sciences. And I can tell you, uh, back when I was in school uh, 40 years ago, uh, that was nothing that I ever dreamed of doing. But I thought I really that. So I started investigating and my eye was immediately drawn to evolutionary psychology. And that's because evolutionary psychology helps to account for how the human brain evolved and how it works. And 40 years ago, when I was in school, evolutionary psychology didn't exist. The science uh, didn't exist. It only really uh, came into its own in the early 1990s. So this is very fresh, very new scientific uh, research that, that I'm drawing on. And here's what evolutionary psychology does. It says, if you could find evidence that human beings in all cultures all around the world are all reacting the same way in uh, specific, highly controlled social experiments, then that gives us some reason to believe that this is not a cultural effect this is actually a biological effect. This is how our brain works. And so those are some of the results that I base my, uh, my book on. Okay. And so we'll, we'll go through the, the kind of list of, of, of Trumpisms and some of the things that you help explain. But at the core of what you kind of learned off of or, or the thesis that you developed off of this looking at evolutionary psychology. And by the way, I think the other thing that you really discovered is, you know, how to fulfill the dream we all have, which is I know I did college and, you know, in grad school wrong. How can I go back and try to do that again now that I know so much more? So maybe that'll be your next book is, you know, how to, how to finally go back and, and do, do grad school, at least grad school studies the way we ought to have done it back, uh, back in the day. But, but as, as you, as you look at the, the thesis, as you, your thesis off of this really gets to what we've evolved is a set of instincts. And those instincts are really great in our real life. They help us avoid sharks. And you talk about, uh, you know, the New Jersey case in, in 1916. And, and they help us when we hear screeching wheels. And there are all sorts of other things that our natural instincts help us with and, and, and frankly help keep us alive. But they're really lousy for politics. W why is that? Great. So that's the main theme of the book. Yeah. And our instincts don't work in politics most of the time because our instincts are geared to experiencing life in a circumscribed arena. So um, the human brain evolved to help hunter-gatherers who live primarily in small communities of between 25 and maybe 150 people. The brain didn't evolve to deal with mass politics involving millions and literally billions of people. So when, for example, we find that um, a minority will turn out on election day 
uh, and you'll think, well, why is that? Here we have a democracy. Our forefathers fought uh, a revolution to uh, win us the right for self-government. This is so vital uh, to democracy that people turn out and become engaged. Uh, why did only 37 percent of uh, eligible voters in the uh, last election, the midterms, uh, turn out to vote. It seems appalling. It doesn't make any sense. But if you understand that our brain was designed to deal only with a small group of people and not millions of people, then it makes perfect sense. So uh, that's what I'm trying to uh, uh, help us understand. Uh, we really only care about a small number of uh, relationships. Um, and those are the people who we have constant human real contact with, not even social media contact. That really doesn't uh, count. What, what the human brain really gets excited about is when you meet people face to face. Those are the people you care about. Those are the people you can really evaluate. You can come to understand. But we have to make decisions in the modern world based on people that we only come to know through television, through flitting, fleeting images flickering on a television screen. And that doesn't work. And when you're asked to really care about what's happening in Washington, D.C., a place that's maybe thousands of miles away from where, from where you live, that doesn't really compute for the human brain. We can understand it through higher order cognitive thinking, but our instincts tell us, don't worry about it only really care about what's happening in your immediate area. So that's why Tip O'Neill, when he said all politics is local, really, there was a lot of brain science behind that, but he didn't know it. <laughs> yeah, he, he predated the evolutionary psychology movement, but turns out he had not a bad bumper sticker for it. So, so, so let's connect um, what, what you're saying and, and you know, this, your, your central idea that you know, instincts, if, if all politics is local, all instincts is bad in politics. And, and let's tie it to, you know, let's look through the Donald Trump. So, so you mentioned a moment ago or a little bit ago, uh, the attacks on foreigners. And, and look, Trump opened, as you've noted and, and has been written, you know, he opened his whole campaign, uh, with the, you know, the walk down the, uh, the escalator in, in Trump Tower and the attack on, uh, on the Mexicans. So that's how it all began and the attacks on the foreigners, which, you know, is, as you write, you know, is, is perfectly natural and perfectly, you know, understandable to our Stone Age brains. Um, you also write about, you know, people have called Trump as well, among many things, um, a demagogue. And uh, that as well might be something you write that, that, you know, connects directly with our Stone Age brains. Why is that? In the end, every election is about the voters. It's not about the politicians. And even with Donald Trump, we think that he's such an egotist. But his campaign brilliantly has put the voter at the center of the campaign. Uh, even though we think, you know, Trump with putting his name on airplanes and buildings and hotels and and hundreds of companies that he owns and operates. Uh, actually, he has built his campaign around the voters because what is it that his voters have been feeling for years? They've been feeling uh, that they couldn't say in public what they were really thinking uh, about Muslims, about uh, Mexican immigrants coming across the border. And he said, it's okay. He's validated their feelings. So in his presence, they're feeling smart. That's a powerful emotion. And that has created a powerful connection between him and his voters. 
what is Donald Trump doing? He's making his voters feel smart in his presence because he's validating the things that they've been saying privately to themselves and to their friends and family, but which the mainstream media has told them for years you cannot say in public. That's what this whole political correctness phenomenon is about. So when he says, hey, it's uh, okay to uh, feel that Muslim terrorists are a threat to this country and we ought to keep them out, uh, or that all Muslims are a possible threat to this country and we should keep them out, uh, or that we have to uh, throw out all the uh, Mexican immigrants who uh, came here across the border uh, without uh, proper documentation and papers. What he is doing is he is making his voters feel smart because they feel like he's validating their views. So the election in the end is always about the voters, and Trump is making his voters feel smart and validated. And there's another area uh, that relates to our, our Stone Age brains, and it's in the news right now. And, and as I've been watching it play out on TV and all the discussions of it and then Trump's defense of it, I, I, I imagine you've got to tell me what you felt when, when you heard uh, Trump say this. And this is um, the whole uh, Corey Lewandowski uh, um, items and, you know, the, his, his, you know the, the misdemeanor battery charge against him uh, down in Florida with the uh, journalist from Breitbart News. And uh, when Trump said, I'm not going to, you know, I'm not firing this guy, uh, you know, I, this is about loyalty to me. I'm loyal to him and, and I'm going to be I'm loyal to, to Corey, just like I'm going to be loyal to the country. And I heard that. And, and I mean, what, what was given what you've written? And so, you know, let's talk about it. Uh, you know, what, what the role of loyalty does um, and, and how that plays to our brains. But when you heard that, did you did you fall off your chair? I didn't fall off my chair because I know that people uh, generally human beings don't like to admit that they were uh, wrong. So Trump didn't want to um, show that he was uh, uh, wrong about hiring uh, Lewandowski and entrusting his entire campaign to this guy. Plus, he probably really needs this guy. Trump doesn't know all that much about politics. He needs people who do know about politics. And uh, apparently uh, Lewandowski does know something about politics. So I, I saw it from that angle, not so much from the loyal angle. Um, Donald Trump is um, like a, a dominant Primate. In fact, the, I think the best way to understand what's been going on uh, in this election cycle, particularly on the Republican side, is when you know when you see all those guys uh, at the GOP debates. Just uh, instead of seeing them as human beings, just look at them and think of them all as kind of dominant alpha male primates, all fighting and and uh, bleeding and and uh, roaring uh, to uh, try to show that. They're the big one. They're the strong one. And a strong person doesn't ever want to admit uh, in a primate fight that they've got any weaknesses. They'll hide any weaknesses that they have so that they can intimidate you. And I really feel like that's what's going on there. And you've also written about, you know, the anger and, and, and the anger that every, I mean, you've written about it kind of historically in the role that anger can play in politics, but, but obviously, uh, it's a, it's a major theme of this political campaign. Everyone's trying to understand, uh, the politi you know, the anger that we all feel. And, and some of it, look, even I, uh, understand. I mean, you know, it's hard to look at, uh, things in, in my view, like the, you know, the inequality gap in America and, and other aspects and not, not feel, uh, you know, some, some real anger about, 
that uh, the system, and uh, you know it's, it's very understandable. But you also write that, uh, and I'm quoting you now, that um, politicians uh, deploy anger um, now, quote, because it draws people together and gives their efforts focus and purpose. So tapping into that anger is actually not a bad political strategy, is it? Uh, it's a great political strategy. It's horrible for American democracy. Here's the problem. People who are angry, according to all the scientific studies that I consulted, um, tend to have a closed mind and they operate in closed loops. So they uh, aren't open to uh, compromise. And it's okay in a democracy. In fact, it's essential in a democracy for minorities to uh, get angry about something because that um, uh, motivates them. That creates uh, group cohesion. Uh, it's like the AIDS activists uh, act up back in the 1980s uh, who were faced uh, uh, with uh, death and oppression. So they used their anger to uh, create social change. Uh, that's what the civil rights movement uh, did in many uh, uh, respects. Even while Martin Luther King was talking about love, there was also a lot of anger uh, that was running uh, underneath it, uh, which you saw in people like uh, Stokely Carmichael and the Black Panthers and uh, that aspect of the movement. The problem is when everybody in the society is uh, angry, then the wheels of democracy grind to a halt. Democracy doesn't work if everybody's angry because democracy requires compromise. We need people to feel anxious, which activates a different part of the brain, and not to feel anger. But, of course, politicians are trying to win an election, so they're going to tap into people's anger. Uh, and there's so much anger out there. That's what uh, uh, both Trump and Sanders are doing. And um, uh, they're running to the bank with it, right? They're, they're doing extremely well. Hillary's problem over on the Democratic side is uh, she doesn't really know how to tap into that anger. Maybe she doesn't want to. Um, but it's not good for democracy for politicians to be tapping into the anger, uh, um, not at the presidential level. It's, it's, it's really problematic. You know, one of the things that you just said, uh, politics requires compromise. Um, on the Republican side, part of what Trump seems to get criticized for, and, uh, you know, while, you know, many may feel there's a lot of reasons to criticize Trump, the one aspect that, that, you know, seems, at least to me, fairly reasonable is he, he, He's he's always looking for the a deal. He's always looking how can I negotiate something. Now, of course, there's all sorts of you know wrong with that and and problems. And he kind of views everything through the prism of a of a deal and a negotiation as opposed to you know maybe some some other paradigms. But on that, is he right? And and is that sense that you know politics requires compromise? Is that hardwired into our brain? And is that also part of what? Trump, you know, connects with or, or how, how do you see all of his talk on, on, you know, wanting to negotiate or a willingness to negotiate? Um, how does that connect with the, the fact that politics requires compromise? And, and then how does that, that, that in turn connect with how our brains are wired? I don't think this has all that much to do with how our brains are wired. I think this is just born of uh, experience that uh, we understand in um, in business as well as in uh, politics, if you want to get anywhere, uh, because we're a large society, um, you're going to have to compromise with lots of different groups. Um, so in a small society, there's probably uh, um, uh, less need for uh, uh, a compromi compromising mentality because uh, that the hunter-gatherers face, because the people, for the most part, 
were uh, dressing the same. They looked the same. They came from the same uh, uh, ethnic background, more or less. Uh, so the kind of uh, compromises that they had to make uh, were far less significant than the kind of compromises uh, we have to make. Um, I'll point out one thing, uh, one observation that the uh, social scientists would make. Uh, as I'm saying this, I'm thinking, oh, some social scientists out there thinking, oh, he doesn't understand hunter-gatherer communities. So I got to add this very, very quickly uh, just to protect myself. Yes, please. Uh, so uh, hunter-gatherer communities tended to be uh, very, very democratic. Uh, and the reason for this is that in a small group, Nobody wanted to let themselves be dominated by any single individual. And if some psychopath uh, got into a powerful uh, position, then other people would form a social coalition against the person and take them down and quite often uh, uh, kill them. So there was kind of a natural democracy to the hunter-gatherer communities. As far as we can glean, of course, it's impossible to recreate societies that existed thousands of years ago and didn't leave evidence uh, to their social organization. Um, so I just wanted to work that in. Okay, so all, all you social scientists out there, back off. You know, Shank, right. <laughs> Shankman's got this. You know, he's on top of it. It's just, you know, stand your ground. I, so, so let's go back, if we can, to, you know, to your central thesis, which then raises, you know, all sorts of concerns, you know, so instincts and, and the great, you know, one line. I, I, I'd hate to boil down, you know, a, a terrific book like this down to one line, but I guess if you're only going to read one sentence, um, you know, your sentence that w when it comes to politics, the times when we can unquestioningly go with our instincts are almost nil, right? That's kind of, you know, that's, that's a pretty powerful statement in a, in sentence in a pretty powerful book. Um, but now let, let's, you know, offer me some hope here. So if that's the problem, our brains are hard, hardwired with these certain instincts and those instincts are really great in all sorts of circumstances, like, you know, trying to avoid sharks in 1916 New Jersey, but they're lousy in politics. Um, you, you also say that potentially, um, science offers us some hope. So w what's the hope? How, how do we get past this problem if we can? So three-fourths of uh, my book, Political Animals, How Our Stone Age Brain Gets in the Way of Politics, is um, fairly uh, gloomy, right? It says that we can't read politicians well. We're apathetic in uh, mass democratic elections. Uh, we don't show the empathy that we should for foreigners because they're abstractions. Um, and some other problems that I address. And you might be feeling gloomy as you're reading the book. But then the final uh, section of the book is all about why I'm an optimist. And science is giving us a reason to be optimistic. First of all, the research of the last two decades is opening up the black box of the brain. Uh, it's not fully open. The lid's not fully open, but it's propped open enough for us to start to understand how our own brain works. So while you cannot stop yourself from having automatic responses, uh, when you see a politician, you have an instant automatic read of that person, uh, which um, is as likely as not to be uh, untrue as true. Uh, you still have now the possibility of higher order cognitive thinking. You can evaluate your automatic response as long as you are uh, savvy 
to how you are having an automatic response. And that's really what the book is all about, is alerting us to the way our brain initially responds to events, to politicians, and so that and to the news, so that we can then second guess ourselves. And I provide chapter and verse in showing how you can second guess yourself in very concrete ways so that you're not just giving in to your instincts. And I think that's a very, very hopeful message. And only in the last couple of decades has science given us the research so that now we can understand our own brains and basically um, uh, catch ourselves. Uh, it's, uh, it's, it's reinventing the gotcha moment. The mass media uh, gotcha moment is to look at politicians and say, hey, I got you. We've caught you. Now, in political animals, I'm saying the gotcha moment has to be for ourselves. Catch yourself when you're operating on instinct and your brain is giving you an automatic response. Now you can say, oh, that's an automatic response. That's not necessarily a thoughtful response. Now let me try and see if my automatic response fits the context of the environment in which I'm actually living. And most of the time in politics, it's not going to fit it. So you're going to look at a politician, you're going to get a read of him on TV, and you, like, you're going to look at John Edwards and you're going to say, wow, he seems to be smart, he's handsome, he's articulate, I really like him, gee, maybe he ought to be president of the United States. Catch yourself, because you are simply having an automatic response. Our brain in 167 milliseconds sizes up people. Now, that you know the science tells you that, then you can have a second wave response and say, wait a minute, I don't really know who this person is. The context is wrong. I only know him as a TV image. I don't really know who he is, what values he really cherishes. I haven't worked next to him. I haven't lived with him in the same small community as our hunter-gatherers live with their leaders. So I need to second guess my reaction. And Rick, I want to do nothing but support the optimism and ride, you know, ride any optimistic wave. I, I'm a huge, huge believer uh, in, in our system and the power of individual thought and the, the good nature of uh, any of us to, you know, to get to our, our inner selves. So this is so without introducing um, pessimism to to, you know, what we're discussing, you know, simply as a follow up or, or a, a question or a, a you know, a, a worry, um, the level of self-awareness that that requires um, is, feels uh, a bit overwhelming. Um, you know, I, I think about the self-awareness that, that any of us needs to have just in our own daily behaviors. You know, why am I, you know, getting upset at, you know, at my spouse or with my kids or with my colleague and what's really going on here? And what am I really feeling in other aspects of it? You know, the, the, the levels of self-awareness that we all need to kind of reach for, um, just in our day-to-day -day interactions is, is intense and, um, a bit intimidating. Uh, how, how, what type of discipline does it take or how, how do we, um, you know, kind of spread that out in, in a mass way necessary to, you know, overcome, you know, the, the instincts that, that are hardwired in our Stone Age brains? Is, is that type of self-awareness um, possible or it just takes time? What, what are your highly optimistic thoughts on, on that? Make me feel good on that, please. So I give a lecture that uh, I'm going around the country uh, 
in uh, talking about uh, the themes of political animals. And in the lecture, I talk about Jesse Washington. 100 years ago, exactly, Jesse Washington was a black man who was accused of a crime in Waco, Texas. And before they could put him on trial, uh, the local people there uh, pulled him out of the jail. They lynched him. They castrated him. They chopped off his fingers, and they burned him to death. And they did this in front of a crowd of 15,000 people. And these people were not horrified. They were either cheering or they were smiling uh, as they watched this. That was just 100 years ago. They were obviously going on instinct. But in 100 years, our culture has so changed us that we're appalled by that. Uh, the most uh, racist person in America would probably be appalled by that and couldn't imagine finding themselves in that kind of a crowd in a public setting watching these kinds of events unfold. So what does that suggest? So biological evolution is incredibly slow. Uh, if you're going to change the human brain, it probably takes, according to E.O. Wilson at Harvard, 25,000 years for any fundamental changes to take place in biological evolution. Cultural evolution is really super fast. It's change on steroids, on super steroids. So I don't think that it's impossible to uh, uh, think that um, if the schools started uh, teaching the science that I'm recounting in my book, that we could raise up a generation that became self-aware, aware of their own brain and how it operates. I think that's fully possible. If in 100 years we could move from lynching Jesse Washington to thinking that's deplorable and impossible to conceive, I don't see why it's impossible to think that in 100 years we could all become savvy enough about the way our own brain works that our politics really um, improves as a result. My instinct is to believe that. I, I love that explanation. And, uh, you know, I, I don't think that's just blind optimism. That's, uh, I, I, I buy that. And I think about, uh, you know, other changes that have occurred around other areas in civil rights and, uh, you know, other aspects of our society just in the last, you know, 20, 40, 50, 10 years. And, uh, yeah, I, I, I do believe that. Um, to to close out, so I've got no uh, pessimistic or you know contrary or challenging uh, you know. I mean, I'm sure we could do it, but uh, um, let's go with that. That uh, that that certainly you know that's an optimistic and certainly reasonable point of view. Um, just to to close out, um, if I could turn to uh, you, uh, Rick Shankman, as the historian, and uh, you know maybe you'll put some of the science in here as well. But uh, you know, really, just you know, you're a, a student of of and a teacher and a, a writer and a journalist of of history. Um, we keep hearing that this campaign is unprecedented. We have never seen anything like this before. We have never seen anything like Donald Trump before. Is that true when, when you just think about your own, you know, views of history and, and, and American politics? Is there a, a time that, that just jumps out in your mind where you say, well, wait a second, you know what, we, we kind of have seen this before? Well, we certainly had plenty of demagogues in our history, going back to uh, Joe McCarthy in the 1950s, to Father Coughlin in the 1930s, to Huey Long in the 1930s. 
So we've had no shortage of demagogues in American political history. Uh, but here's the difference. Uh, back in the 19th century, uh, party bosses were in charge. So they were doing the selecting of nominees. So you didn't have this self-selection. And that's really a, a phenomenon of the television age. Only since the rise of television have the political parties become so weak that basically candidates now self-select themselves. So this gives demagogues a wider berth than they ever had before in our history. So that part is relatively new. That's really only the last 50, 60 years. And in that period, there were uh, uh, constraints that most leading candidates for president um, operated under. Donald Trump has broken through all of those restraints. And who knows what's going to happen now? Is this uh, uh, certainly if he wins the Republican nomination, that's going to be a signal to other politicians that they, too, uh, uh, not only can, but should break the uh, restraints of the past and just uh, uh, traffic in raw motion because that's how you win. So we'll have to see how this plays out. Uh, but I, I'm more impressed with the differences uh, seeing uh, that I'm seeing in this election cycle than the similarities. Of course, you can always find similarities. Uh, back in uh, the election of 1912, you had the Republican Party uh, breaking apart at the seams where you had Teddy Roosevelt uh, playing the role of the insurgent uh, against William Howard Taft, playing the role of the uh, establishment. Uh, and it got to the point where Teddy uh, ran as a uh, third party candidate. He was very, very radical uh, in that sense. He was kind of the Bernie Sanders of the 1912 election. So you can always see those parallels. I'm not sure how terribly helpful they are. It's good to be aware of them. Um, but I'm more impressed with the differences and the similarities. Well, that's uh, very interesting. That's a fantastic thing to hear uh, from a historian. Maybe we're, uh, you know, breaking a little new ground, and that's not the worst thing uh, either, I don't think. Rick Shankman is the author of the new and terrific book, Political Animals, How Our Stone Age Brain Gets in the Way of Smart Politics. You can find out all about it at, I love that you got this URL, stoneagebrain.com. I mean, what else would you put your book at but that URL? I, I, was, I was in shock that it was available, and I grabbed it. I, I, it only cost me 100 bucks. <laughs> that's <laughs> money well spent. It was, it's, a, it's a great URL. So StoneAgeBrain.com. Uh, Rick is also editor and founder of uh, History News Network. Um, uh, Rick, thank you so much for your time. I'm Chris Reback. This is Political Wire Conversations.